0: Welcome to Eastern Europe's Minorities in a Century of Change, a podcast on the history of minority experiences in Central and Eastern Europe during the 20th century. I'm Alana Balko, co-organizer of the Basis Study Group for Minority History. The series is part of the Institute of Historical Research Centennial Commemorations Our Century, Looking Back, Thinking Forward, and has been organized by the study group. It was made possible through the help and support of the British Association of Slavonic and East European Studies in the Stanley Burton Center for Holocaust and Genocide Studies at the University of Leicester. The study group is a forum devoted to researching minorities in the national and regional histories of Central, Eastern and Southeast Europe and promoting closer scholarly collaborations. For more information, please visit our website at studygroupforminorityhistory.com. On today's episode, Professor Andrei Portneau at the European University of Viadrina talks to us about Ukraine and its entangled history. Andriy, welcome to the podcast. Can you start by telling us a little about yourself and your academic journey?
1: Hello. Uh, So my name is Andriy Portnov. Um, I was born in Ukraine and I've graduated uh, at first from Dnipro University in History and then from Warsaw University in Cultural Studies. And I've defended my dissertation in Lviv. It was about... Ukrainian emigration in interval Poland, and since 2012 uh, I live and work in Germany, and since 2018 I'm a professor of contemporary history of Ukraine at the European University Viadrina Frankfurt Order, and in terms of, let's say, topics I'm interested in, I would say that uh, it's pretty broad, actually, because my, like, my first publications, they were about, let's say, historiography of Old Drus. which sounds a bit crazy nowadays. <laughs> and at the moment, I'm finishing my book on the Dnipro, so my native city. And I'm also trying to do several projects about, I would call it kind of intellectual history of um, Eastern Europe uh, in the 20th century. Mostly, let's say, in the interwar period. Yeah, so something like that.
0: Thank you. Um, As professor for the Ukrainian uh, studies at Viadrina, have you perhaps noticed any difference in the way Ukrainian studies are conceptualized in Ukraine and abroad? If so, what are the main differences in doing Ukrainian studies or Ukrainian history, to be more precise, outside of Ukraine?
1: Um, Yeah, of course, of course there are differences. I would say the basic uh, difference is that uh, in Ukraine. Ukrainian history is first and foremost uh, presented, exercised as a national history, yeah? And in case of uh, studying Ukrainian history everywhere else, in Poland, but especially in Germany, in France, in Great Britain, I would say that the basic problem is the lack of uh, deeper cultural uh, connections uh, to Ukraine. Very simply, for instance, I remember giving a lecture in Brussels, once and uh, i've mentioned taras shevchenko just for the sake of the argument and i was immediately asked by uh, students and colleagues to explain whom am i talking about so it's the name of the biggest ukrainian writer so if you use it in ukraine at least kind of you know everybody will uh, somehow understand uh, what I'm talking about, even though Shevchenko is a complicated figure, of course, and it's not so easy to understand. But that's a different story. And in case of Germany, for instance, you need to explain literally everything. So to start your talk or your book, <laughs> your article from the explanation of the entire, you know, like background context and so, so on, which is not bad. But I should tell it's really different from, for example, Russian history or Russian literature, because in this case, there is this background knowledge you could rely on. And in my experience, that's seriously the the most, let's say, noticeable, visible uh, difference.
0: Um, There seems to be a certain confusion over the correct term to use when referring to this subject. Some prefer the history of Ukraine, the history of the Ukrainian lands, or simply Ukrainian history. Do all those terms mean the same thing? And how is it reflective of the multi-ethnic character of Ukrainian past?
1: Uh, so you see, I'm lucky, seriously, I'm lucky to have a professorship which is called "Entanglement History of Ukraine. It's not my term, believe me. So I've just applied for the position <laughs> called like that. But I think it's really nice name because on the one hand, it still has Ukraine in it, yeah? So it's not just like Eastern Europe or whatever, but at the same time, it stresses this idea of entanglements. And entanglement uh, in this case means on the one hand, uh, Ukrainian history linked, interrelated, interconnected to Polish, Jewish, Russian, Ottoman, Soviet, Armenian history. Yeah. On the other hand, it means inclusion of different groups and experiences on the territory of Ukraine into the narrative, so to say. Yeah. And for instance, if you ask me, like, what lectures do I uh, give? Um, it's usually something like entangled stuff. For instance, it could be about Ukrainian, Polish uh history and uh, asymmetric relations yeah it could be about uh, the jews in eastern europe first and foremost again ukraine poland and belarus uh, once i've did a great course about a uh, great experience for me of course maybe it was not so great i don't know about ukraine and belarus so comparing two let's say yeah, two histories of you know nation, state, territory, language, whatever, name it, and also different present-day models of political systems. So I think uh, nowadays, uh, speaking seriously, nobody will treat a Ukrainian history in a purely ethnic categories. It makes no sense, um, and I don't see a problem actually speaking about history of Ukraine and automatically understanding that it includes, of course, the history of the Jews, of the Crimean Tatars, of the Poles, of also the Russians, of course, in Ukraine, and other groups and other, let's say, historical context. That's quite an obvious thing to me.
0: Um, thank you. Um, let's, let's, let's talk a little bit about the present. Um, On 21st of August, uh, sorry, 24th of August, Ukraine celebrated 30th year of independence. Um, This year, unlike in previous years, and correct me if I'm wrong, one of the key messages was was of Ukraine's renewed independence. Where do you think this is coming from? Um, What is behind this shift in understanding of Ukraine's history? And how important is it for the ways in which we read and interpret Ukraine's past?
1: Actually, yeah I should tell that I've been to Ukraine in August uh, not exactly in the celebration days but right before them. it was very interesting because you know Ukraine is a very dynamic as we all know it's a very dynamic society and country. it always surprises at least me surprises me yeah and uh, coming to a question I would put so my impression is that uh, this idea of uh, renewing independence, it was somehow present, Since the very beginning, I mean, since 1991. And why so? Uh, In my view, it's pretty understandable. So, already, this, the very first, let's say, post Soviet um, government, yeah, first president, Lenit Kravchuk, uh, they uh, wanted, at the symbolical level, to show that Ukraine, as a newly born post Soviet state, is not just a product of the Soviet politics but it has a deeper historical, if you wish, pre-Soviet roots. And that's pretty understandable. And for instance, in case of um, uh, Kravchuk, so early 90s, there was a ceremony uh, when um, the official representative of the Ukrainian People's Republic abroad, it's kind of a formal position, of course, he symbolically gave his insignia to Kravchuk. As the president of Ukraine, so you see this logic that uh, post-Soviet Ukraine is not uh, something that like came to be out of Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic, but it's something that is based on the experiences of at least uh, Ukrainian. Republic and Ukrainian state of Hetman Skoropatsky in the 1980s, 1990s, but also, if you wish, of course, it could refer to the Cossack state, yeah, to the great, and then you have this entire historical mythology behind it. I think it's nothing unusual, it's rather typical uh, for, let's say, um, uh, historical consciousness, yeah, especially in Eastern Europe. And... Uh, In terms of scholarship, I would say that it is important for us as historians to be aware of both. I mean, of this deep Soviet impact on what happened to Ukraine after the collapse of the Soviet Union in the 90s and later on, but also on the existing, at least intellectual, reference to the previous attempts of Ukrainian statehood. Because we should be aware, of course, the Soviet project was not the very first Ukrainian project, not at all, not at all. It also referred, actually, to different uh, projects from the age of revolutions, yeah? And they referred to Cossacks and so, so, so on. So you have this kind of, you know, this heritage uh, logic or this background logic behind it. And uh, as for me, it's pretty understandable. We should, we should be realistic about
0: it. Uh, <clears throat> Ukraine was once the borderland of three different empires, Imperial Russia, the Ottoman Empire, and Austria-Hungary. To reflect this geopolitical complexity, uh, many his- history textbooks tend to include at least two different storylines, one for the Dnipro-Ukraine under the Russian Tsars, and another for Western Ukraine that existed as a crownland of the Habsburg monarchy. Do you believe it is possible to look beyond this separation in order to write a comprehensive history of Ukraine? And if so, when would such historical accounts start?
1: Uh-huh. Actually, I would say that uh, we are lucky again, we historians, we historians, we are lucky because in case of um, Ukraine national project, cultural project, we have this fascinating uh, competition. Coexistence, uh, whatever mm, I mean, uh, between the Habsburg and the Romanovs empires. Yeah. Furthermore, we know nowadays that it was largely due to the fact that Ukrainian lands were divided between those two big empires. We have, yeah, one could say, kind of a big success of Ukrainian national project later on in the 20th century, uh, and it, it becomes clear if you compare it again to Belarus and the Belarusian National Project. It's very important, let's keep it in mind. So the history of Belarusian National Movement yeah, is a history of movement in the Russian Empire because after the petitions of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, the entire territory of modern Belarus became part of Russia. yeah, And it was not, not the case of Ukraine. Yeah? So in case of Ukraine, uh, large parts uh, um, and especially of course the city of Lviv yeah and entire East Galicia. actually East Galicia is an Austrian category that is also important to be aware of. So there was no Eastern Galicia before the Habsburgs. <laughs> okay So because of that Ukrainian project could rely on this again competition between the empires yeah. And uh, let us not forget for instance that in Belarus uh, the Russian government managed to destroy the Greek Catholic Church. Yeah. And as we know, it was not destroyed. On the contrary, it was even to some extent supported uh, by the Habsburgs Yeah, in Austria. And as we also know, actually, exactly this church through the Greek Catholic Church was one of the maybe even the most important element of the Ukrainian national movement in Eastern Galicia. yeah. So, in other words, I think that is actually what makes this story so fascinating, this, let's say, existence of two imperial experiences yeah, in it. And uh, I would say there is no way to write Ukrainian history without keeping it in mind. Because seriously, every important book publication or cultural project in the Russian Empire, so uh, it was always some ca- somehow, let's say, it had also some references to what was going on in Austria. We know that after the decisions to impose uh, restrictions on Ukrainian language, yeah, Ukrainian language books from the Russian Empire published in Lviv and so, so on. And then also people from Lviv were coming to so-called Dnieper, Ukraine, to look at the Cossack territories. And, and so we have this fascinating story. And I think... Uh, It is also, actually, it's also kind of entanglement, if you wish. (laughs) And that is why I think um, we uh, not just should, we have no other way but to include all those stories into the narrative. Also, of course, not forgetting about like smaller, uh, let's say, other experiences like the Ottoman Empire in present-day Ukrainian territories, of course, the Hungarian presence and so, so on. But still, I would say uh, the Habsburg and the Romanovs empire, they really, yeah, they formed, let's say, this uh, landscape or space. They formed the space in which uh, Ukrainian national project uh, succeeded.
0: Turning to the issues of minorities now, Uh, Ethnic and confessional diversity has always been a feature of the Ukrainian lands. At the same time, Ukraine was home to some of the most horrific instances of ethnic cleansing in modern European history. A growing body of research supports the idea that ethnic-based violence became an unintended consequence of national self-determination and support for the nation-state, as facilitated by the interwar Versailles system uh, and institutionalized through the League of Nations. This shift from the world of empire to the world of nations is often viewed as a key reason why so many borderland populations who had coexisted for centuries descended into violence. What what is your opinion on this? Does the desire to form a nation-state precipitate ethnic violence? And was Ukraine that unique in the level of ethnic violence committed on its territory? Uh,
1: Okay, so first of all, I think that... um, It would be, in my view at least, in my view at least, it would be a bit, uh, let's say, reductionist or oversimplified uh, to make a conclusion like uh, the one saying that, okay, in the age of empires, we have more tolerance or more like peaceful coexistence, yeah, and in the age of a nation state, we automatically have violence, ethnic cleansings, and genocides. I think it's not so simple. And uh, furthermore, I will say that. As a historians, we need to be very uh, careful and cautious in analysing every particular case of, you know, for instance, uh, name it pogroms, uh, ethnic cleansings, and uh, the genocides. Um, we need to contextualise it properly because otherwise, it's very dangerous just to make some, you know, let's say, political or ideological, uh, you know, claims about it, uh, which could be misleading sometimes. Uh, now. Very interesting. Uh, Let's think about the fact that uh, all the big empires, yeah, uh, imperial powers uh, on the European continent, uh, they somehow declined and collapsed and uh, all of them were, yeah, one could say replaced by the nation states. Was it just a coincidence? Was there any deeper logic behind it? Uh, That's a difficult question to answer. Actually, it's not so obvious at all. Uh, And then, uh, again, we could, of course, find some examples of terrible uh, mass crimes committed by the empires uh, in their overseas colonies, but not only. If you look closely at the Russian history, for instance, yeah. Uh, and also histories of some other states. Uh, on the other hand, when uh, the nation state uh, came to be, it is interesting that uh, we see it already, let's say, I would say on the eve of the First World War, we see this belief that if we want some particular state to be efficient economically, socially, politically, it is better for this state to be ethnically homogeneous. Yeah, that's a dangerous idea, of course, that's a dangerous idea that brought a lot of problems, for instance, to the interval Poland. So again, like the topic of (laughs) my very first PhD dissertation, because you see interval Poland, uh, this state also actually viewed itself as a renewed Poland. Yeah, so the Poland before the partitions, and it had an enormous problem how to treat all those national minorities within its borders. First of all, Ukrainians, but also Jews, Germans, and others. And I would say this state failed to find a proper answer to this question till the very end. They were like, you know, on the one hand, pretending or hoping, yeah, to view Poland as a nation state, so a state of Poles, yeah, so ethnic Poles. On the other hand, it was pretty clear that there are millions of Polish citizens of different ethnic origin, different religion, different language. And uh, now, like nowadays, uh, it brings us to the question, okay, and what about, yeah, nowadays world, maybe post-national world, as someone said, which I'm not so sure about, actually. <laughs> uh, why it's so important, I, I think, like, for our discussion also, that uh, Ukraine nowadays... Ukraine nowadays is a really uh, not just like you know monkey something country it's a really diverse society yeah and some people inside Ukraine also intellectuals and also some people outside Ukraine intellectuals, politicians name it they are I would say afraid of this diversity. Uh, The logic behind this fear is the same as I've described before. So in order to be efficient economically and politically, it's better, kind of better, supposedly better to be homogeneous. Again, I'm not sure about it, but that's like the logic or the argument behind the point. In other words, if you wish, we could say that the success or the framework of Ukrainian uh, state project after the collapse of the Soviet Union is also very much kind of a success or a failure question mark for the idea of diversity in Europe. So I'm always saying that, uh, often saying, uh, that nowadays Ukraine is a kind of a laboratory of uh, diversity and different, let's say, attitudes, approaches to it. That is why it's so interesting to look closely at what is going on. Uh, in language sphere, in religious sphere, in uh, you know, all those debates on, of course, like history, monuments, whatever, because uh, behind them we have a society which is much more diverse than, for instance, its neighbors in the West. I mean, Poland, Czech Republic, Slovakia, Hungary, name it. They, are all of them, they are much more homogeneous than Ukraine. <laughs> Belarus is much more homogeneous. So it's really, it's really fascinating to think about it. How such type of uh, society uh, could function. And I think it's very important also for the entire debate on yeah, Europe, metaphorically speaking, of course, Europe. Yeah, what is Europe, what are European values, stuff like that. Uh, because in this debate about Europe, we have again uh, a lot of talks about diversity. But at the same time, uh, we have some, I would say, even reluctance uh, to an extent to look deeper and to understand the nature of this diversity in Ukraine. What do I mean? For instance, very simple, like this uh, language issue, this classical story. Yeah, uh, The language situation in Ukraine is so unique. It could not be compared to you know, the Swiss one, <laughs> the Canadian one, name it. It's really... Very, very interesting. Uh, It has also its social dimension. Yeah. It has geographical dimension. It has age dimension. So, generational dimension and so so on. And I'm amazed by the fact that, for instance, uh, uh, a lot of also German colleagues of mine, French colleagues of mine, even after like no talks about it, uh, they are still, no, I would say reluctant, reluctant to really fully grasp this particular uniqueness. And uh, I think our like, chance as a Ukrainian scholar, the scholars of Ukrainian studies is actually to uh, raise topics like that and to show their uh, interaction potential for the broader debate again on diversity, on minorities, on you know things like that. That is my big hope that Ukrainian topic could really develop in this direction. That would be great.
0: Uh, thank you. Uh, you previously served as one of the principal investigators for the project Divided Memories, Shared Memories: Poland, Russia and Ukraine. Could you tell us a bit about its key findings? Is some form of historical re- reconciliation possible and can people in these three neighboring countries forgive the atrocities they had committed against each other over the generation, especially in the current political climate?
1: Yeah. Okay. So that, that was a nice project. Uh, not, not a very big one, actually, a rather small one, I would say, uh, at the University of Geneva. Uh, so we've organized several conferences, very interesting conferences uh, in Switzerland, but also in other parts of Europe, in Poland. There was one in Poland, for instance. And as for me, the main result of this project um, are books, That's maybe kind of a bit like old-fashioned, but I still believe that books are important. (laughs) So we publish several books. One book uh, is in English. It's a collection of articles called "Official History in Eastern Europe." So it is like it's not just about Soviet experience. It's broad. It's about this idea of official history. So having official history for. A multinational state for national state, you know, for, for empire, name it, but official history, yeah? The, this category of history becoming official, yeah, obligatory. So another book was in French. Uh, actually, I'm also very happy about it because uh, this was a kind of an uh, almost, I would say, popular publication about the key figures in uh, Polish, Russian, and Ukrainian history. So how they are perceived in those three national traditions. You now, for instance, there was articles about Bohdan yeah, about uh, Simon Petlura, but also about some figures from you know, Russian, about Pemsudsky, very important person, and so, so on. Uh, and actually, when you uh, at first read, at first read, then write, and then read again, <laughs> this stuff, you see actually, uh, It's it's really incredible that uh, there are some uh, persons like Milnitsky, for instance, who are mythologically perceived in a very different way in those three different uh, national traditions, even though those three views... Are pretty, let say, I would say, yeah, like far away from the complex historical reality, you know, of um, uh, the sort of, uh, 17th century, yeah, Polish, Lithuanian, Commonwealth, and stuff like that. So you could feel this difference between uh, the event or the figure and the mythology around it. That was really fascinating. And speaking about reconciliation, uh, I would say that that was not our aim. Uh, Our aim was, you know, our aim at this project was actually to look uh, deeper historically at the origins and development of different stereotypes we have nowadays. Because, again, as we all know, there are so many stereotypes, my God, like in Ukraine about... Russia, in Poland about Ukraine, uh, in, in Poland about Russia, and so, so on. In Russia, of course, like everybody else. And um, our task was to look uh, deeper, um, not just, at, let's say, the last 30 years, but also deeper, sometimes even uh, hundreds of years deeper. Yeah, So not just even Soviet times, but really deeper and uh, looking for, let's say, if you wish, like the logic of these stereotypical developments, yeah, and there were some interesting findings. Also, for instance, some stuff about uh, cinema, because of course, as we know, this modern media they are very much, <laughs> they are very successful in promoting, again, uh, mythologies and um, uh, yeah, mass cultural, let would say, attitudes to history. Um, And what we also tried our best to do, we tried to present uh, the findings in different contexts, so not just in Switzerland, in Geneva, but also to do it in Poland, to do it in Ukraine, uh, to do it in some Russian language publication. And I think it was a good idea, actually, to, like, how to put it, let's say, to engage yourself into this intercultural, you know, exchange or debate, which is not easy as, as we could imagine, especially nowadays. And uh, talking about uh, this, my like, current situation, so frankly speaking, how to put it? i am put it this way. Uh, I am not, at least I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying not to be naive about, you know, such things as uh finding a common ground, a common solution for, let's Ukrainian-Russian historical stereotypes right now when the war is going on, when we have this terrible propaganda all around, and so, so on. But at the same time, I still believe that at least in academic writing, So in our serious academic research, we could continue producing uh, good, uh, serious, uh, reliable stuff about those complicated issues. In other words, I am aware that we could not stop this propaganda. But at the same time, I don't want to stop myself from writing about also Russian history or some difficult topics in Ukrainian-Polish history. So I think the real problem here is that how this academic uh, level could be, yeah, presented at least, not just transferred. Presented in this sphere of mass media or political debate. Here I am really, you know, skeptical, because maybe I should say that I've spent some time. Um, trying to do something like that. So I've engaged myself in different uh, public debates, at first in Ukraine, then in Poland, then in Germany, you know, about history, about reconciliation. And I should say that my, at least, personal experience is that we historians should be realistic about the results of such exercises, yeah? Why so? Because, first and foremost, it is not easy at all to bring our academic language, which is supposed to be, of course, you know, Unbiased, contextualized, complex, and so, so on, into a public debate which often seeks for easy answers, yeah, clear cuts, you know, black and white uh, division lines, and so, so on. And that's a real problem: that the language of academia is, uh, yeah, somehow separated from the language of uh, public debate. Not just in Ukraine, I would say, also in other countries, also in Germany, also in Poland. And I have no solution to this problem. My personal decision is to limit my own engagement into this public debate and to focus more on producing academic. Text. Whether that's a good decision to everyone, I don't know. That's just my personal story <laughs> I'm sharing with you. But I think every one of us should ask uh, her or himself, uh, for instance, why are we doing that? If we are invited to, you know, to write an article for the newspaper or to give a radio talk or to go on a television show. Because I've did it and it could be a pretty traumatic experience. <laughs>
0: Speaking of academic texts, um, your forthcoming book is a biography of the city of Dnipro, formerly known as Dnipropetrovsk in central Ukraine, entitled City Without Me." Why did you decide to focus on this particular city and what about it might be of interest for Western audiences? Uh, also, uh, what are the challenges of writing microhistory, and what is the myth or absence of referred to in the title?
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. thank you so much, Mona. That's a question that is very important uh, and difficult actually for me so first of all uh, the title of this book uh, will probably be a different one because my american publishers are not very happy with this city without myth so we'll see so i could not tell you right now the final of it. <laughs> but probably should be a different one which is not bad again because it's just a metaphor you could use another metaphor which is okay uh but why this city um that's not really easy to answer because uh, what I could tell you that I started this project uh, when I left my uh, Hometown, yeah, native, yeah, my, my, my hometown Dnipro or Dnipropetrovsk. Uh, so, when I lived there and worked there, I've been interested in something completely different mostly Polish history, <laughs> stuff like that, A Crimean history, also, yeah. Uh, but when I left at first to Warsaw, then to Kyiv, I somehow realized that it is really fascinating to look back, yeah, and to write the story of this place. Uh, that was my personal motivation behind it. Uh, now, uh, why why without meat? Because uh, it's actually uh, you know when I've started thinking about the book, I've also talked to different colleagues of mine, uh, especially to those who are from Dnipro, yeah. And uh, in those conversations, uh, several times this idea came that that is the city that is so difficult to define, because you know it it kind of you know it. It it is impossible to like briefly say it's a city of like you know some could say like uh, rocket uh, industry yeah or, or Brezhnev heritage or if you wish it could be said a city of you know Viktor Petrov Dementyevich and Marian Pidmohilny. one could say it's about a Jewish past and present yeah the biggest Jewish community center in the world and so so on and and then the next question how to combine it like Jewish center and Brezhnev. Is there any, you know, connection between them? Or, for instance, those Ukrainian writers and, uh, let's say, Russian imperial project of the late late 18th century, this entire Potemkin stuff, yeah, and turning this place into the third capital of the Russian Empire, and so so on. And then I used this, I, I picked up, actually, this metaphor from those conversations in order to explain that sometimes there are places which, uh, uh, yeah, which lack a defined uh, mythology. Because we have some kind of mythology, let's say, around Odessa. We have it even around, no, uh, you know, places like, yeah, on Kiev, of course. You, you could still somehow define it. It could be about orthodoxy or about Babi Yar or about, uh, you know, Bungakov, and this stuff. But still, you could find such, you know, like elements. In case of Nipro, it's very difficult. <laughs> it's very difficult. And I started playing with it. Uh, why this book could be interesting for the Western audience? Okay, so first of all, I don't know. We'll see. Maybe it will not be interesting. <laughs> Who knows? But my idea, my idea in writing this book was that, um, uh, was that I'll try my best. To include different, as you rightly said, microhistorical uh, stories, uh, persons, uh, tendencies, uh, groups, experiences, whatever, into a much broader uh, narrative of European history of the eighteenth, nineteenth, and twentieth century, and also like trying to look how different theoretical or methodological ideas about writing this history could be applied. To a local material which remains unknown in English-speaking world, because in this case it was also kind of interesting for me, because the absolute majority of my sources doesn't matter, published, unpublished, yeah, they are in Russian, Ukrainian, uh, Yiddish, sometimes Polish, German, but you know, literally a couple of texts in English. That's it. So that's highly unusual, I would say, to have my like book in English, which is where the English language source material is literally like, you know, very, very limited. But that was a kind of a challenge to me. So, how could you tell the story that is completely unknown? Because again, you see, if you write a book even about Odessa, first of all, you could rely on existing books about Odessa. Uh, yeah? Second, you have this mythology behind it, you have recognizable names, like Isak, Babel and so, so on. If you're writing about the Nipro, okay maybe you still have some names like Brezhnev but but besides it you are kind of yeah you you should present this unknown story in an understandable way uh, also put into understandable uh, you know context. And that was a difficult task that is why I've spent so many years writing this book. Too many years, I should say. But now I'm happy that it is finished. (laughs) It will be published soon. And then you, as well as other readers, will actually tell me, hopefully, will tell me whether this idea of bringing local material into a broader comparative historical context, whether it was fruitful or maybe not. So I'm I'm still not completely sure myself about it. So I'd I'd like to figure it out.
0: Thank you. I'm I'm personally really really looking forward to this book because uh, my grandfather studied uh, in Dnipropetrovsk in the 50s. But uh, to my shame, I've never been there. So I think this would be a very good introduction to what what we experienced (laughs) in the the post-war Dnipropetrovsk. Um, This was our last question uh, for today. And thank you, Henri, for joining us. Thank you for your time.
1: Thank you. It was my pleasure.